ask you to turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, as we continue our study here on living life in the liberty of Christ. And as we made our way through Galatians, it's been for the Apostle Paul, argument after argument after argument after argument for the fact that salvation, acceptance with God, righteousness, uh, place in Abram's promises, that all of that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. And he's been coming at that from angle after angle after angle, a ton of different ways. Well, tonight is a little bit different. He kind of interrupts himself and he departs from a doctrinal discussion to an emotional appeal to them. And I think there's something vitally important for us to get from this text when it comes to sorting through truth and believing the truth and staying with the truth. And so I'm looking forward to what God has for us tonight. If you found your place in Galatians 4, if you could stand in honor of God's word, we'll read verses 12 through verse number 20. The Apostle Paul writes to the Galatian believers, brethren, brethren. You can see right off the bat the relationship there that he's appealing to. Brethren, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as ye are. Ye have not injured me at all. Ye know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. And my temptation which was in my flesh ye despised not, nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is then the blessedness ye spake of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, ye would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that ye might affect them. But it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing and not only when I'm present with you. My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. Well, you can just get, I mean, and, and then he's going to go right back into another doctrinal argument. It's almost like as he's coming through, chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, and he's making these appeals that he comes to this place where rather than as at times when he said, oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Or I marvel that you're so soon removed. Instead of coming at them from that angle, you can see the, the passion and the desire and the fatherly plea to them to say, come back, come back. That's really what you hear in this text. And you can also hear a little bit of a, I mean, he says, you've not injured me at all. But you can sense a little bit of injury. But I don't think it's because of them. And I don't think it's because of his relationship with them. I think it's because of their relationship to the truth. That's what he's concerned about. And so tonight we're going to look at this thought, when a friend of truth becomes your enemy, when a friend of truth becomes your enemy. So may God bless reading his word. You can be seated. We'll consider what this passage has for us tonight. During the American Revolution in the 1770s, a 35-year-old young man, captain in the Continental Army, was fighting with such honor, such courage, and such success that he was promoted by General George Washington to the position of a colonel. Well, in 1778, the British withdrew from Philadelphia, and, and this colonel began to set up his headquarters there in Philadelphia. And while he was there, he came into contact and met a young lady by the name of Peggy Shippen, Peggy Shippen. And she was the daughter of a judge there in Philadelphia, a judge who was a British loyalist. And so if you remember back in the revolutionary times, you had those that were in favor of the Continental Army. And they were in favor of a 
Union, a united nation, and they, they were in favor of separation from Great Britain, but then you had those who were still British loyalists there in the early days of our country. And, and that was who, as this was a predominantly British-occupied city at the time that he set up his headquarters there, there were many, many loyalists there in, in the city of Philadelphia. Well, what happens is as he grows closer to this young lady, Peggy, they eventually get married. And this young lady had formerly at one time been courting with uh, British major uh, John, uh, John, what was his name again? John Andre. There we go. I don't know why that was so hard. John Andre. It's because he's British and it's a Hispanic sounding name. That's what was throwing me off. So she, she had courted this young man, this major in the British Army, and, and so had that relationship tie as well. So you can see her family was really tied in to the, the British uh, sentiment. And so what happens, though, is they fall in love, they get married, and eventually through back channels, this young colonel uh, became heavily influenced and immersed there with the British Loyalists, as you can imagine, his own wife being a sympathizer and his father-in-law being a sympathizer. And so he got involved with other loyalists as well. And what ended up happening is through Peggy, his wife, he began corresponding back and forth with John Andre, the major of the British Army. And what that lended itself to was uh, friendship and acquaintance and an exchange of things to where this colonel began to divulge the troop positions of the Continental Army as well as their supply depots. And so there was a lot of shady stuff going on and some of it had begun to come to light and he was court-martialed there in 1779 but then was cleared of those charges. Well then the 1780 rolls around and a plot was unfoiled that he had worked out a deal with Major John Andre that he was going to hand West Point over to the British. And so this plot is foiled, President, or not President at the time, General George Washington catches wind of it, and he begins pursuing this young colonel. And there were many times they thought they had him in their grasp, but eventually he escapes, makes his way to London where he dies in 1801. And this colonel's name is none other than the famous Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold was the classic example of a friend who became a foe, a friend who quickly became a foe. He was an American patriot, but it was his settlement in Philadelphia. It was his association with British loyalists. It was his marriage and his relationship with Peggy Shippen that heavily influenced him into treasonous acts in which his enemies became his friends and his friends became his enemies. In Galatia, the Apostle Paul had arrived on his first missionary journey. He preached the gospel much to the hazard of his own life. He was dealing with a physical problem at the time. He was run out of different towns. He was even stoned and left for dead outside the city of Lystra. But all along the way, he was preaching the gospel and there were Galatian people who were coming out of paganism. There were Galatian Jews who were coming out of Judaism, and they came to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, that salvation and forgiveness is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. They believed that message, and when they saw the great lengths that the Apostle Paul went through to get them that message, they were endeared to him. They loved him. They revered him, respected him. He was a man who went through great expense to bring them the gospel. He taught them. He discipled them in the truth. He loved on them and he invested in them. And yet something happened. Something happened to where at the time of this writing, he had become their enemy. He was a friend of truth in their lives. And yet he has to come where in verse 16, he questions them. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? 
He was, in, in chapters 1 through 4 here, he has been giving them a message of truth, a message they needed to hear, a message that was life-changing for them, one they had already heard, one they had already received, but one from which they had already departed. And now he's just coming to them and telling them the truth. And it's at the point in their relationship where Paul has to say, am I now your enemy? The one you love, the one you revered, the one who hazarded his life for you to receive the gospel? And now your enemy. Well, listen, if it happened in a situation like theirs, that can happen in your life as well. It can happen where it's possible that someone who gave you the gospel, someone who poured their time, their effort, their energy into you, somebody who gave you their attention and they poured their lives to give you the truth. It's possible for you to come to the place when that very dear friend can even become your enemy. There are people who grew up in church under the sound preaching of scriptural truth. They had loving parents, godly parents, parents who read the Bible at home with them every day, parents who poured over their own Bibles in prayer for their children every day. They taught them memory verses. They took them to church. They had Sunday school teachers who taught them week in and week out. They went to youth rallies. They had a youth pastor that loved on them, cared for them, fed them the truth, took them out to dinner, took them all his vacation time from work to go on trips with them. I mean, he poured his life into them. And yet what happens is when they graduate, they can come to the place where they want nothing to do with church, nothing to do with their pastor, nothing to do with their youth pastor. And they want nothing to do with even their own parents, people who loved them, people who fed them the truth, people who were friends of truth are now their enemies. There are Bible college students who can turn to social media to bash the very school that trained them. They harp on what, a, what an abusive and restrictive and controlling situation their home church was when they were kids. And listen, I understand that that happens at times and that there are very authoritarian pastors who take their pastoral role and leadership to a, a level that's completely uh, opposite of what the scripture describes that a pastor ought to be. That happens, no doubt. And there are controlling situations. And there are churches who, like the Judaizers, present this idea of a list of rules and regulations that you have to follow. And it's very restricting, very confining. And what happens is, like Paul's warning them of, it becomes all about duty and law and nothing about relationship and love. I understand that that happens and yet somebody, and I see it, and this is why it's heavy on my heart. I see it from people that I went to high school with. I see it with people that I went to Bible college with that will go on social media and write a whole long laundry list of problems with their home church. And yet that home church is one of the primary reasons as to why they have the gospel and have a savior and yet those who poured their lives into them and were their dearest friends, their college professors, their, their, the ministry, the Sunday school teacher that they helped in Bible college, the people who, who would take them out to lunch when they were in Bible college. I mean, they're loving on them. They're investing in them. They're spending their, all their time studying, grading papers, trying to invest in these college students' lives. And yet they can have the audacity to go on a public forum and to bash the school that's responsible for their understanding of many of the things they believe. And what happens is their dear friends have become their enemies. Why does that happen? How does that happen? What I want to do is I want to show you here why Paul, as a man of truth, why Paul, as a friend of truth, had become the Galatians' enemy. Because I think if we will grasp what happened here, I think it will help us appreciate those who have invested in us, but also it will help us stick with the truth instead of wandering off like the Galatians had. 
Paul appeals to the Galatians on the basis of their history together. If you look there at verse 12, he says, brethren. I love the way that he starts that because he's communicating this. Look, I know that I've, I've said some bold things. I've said maybe some brash things. I understand there's a strained relationship here. I understand that I'm very passionate about what I'm bringing to you. And I'm very passionate about what they are bringing to you. But I want you to know this. Though we might be estranged right now, we're still brothers. We're still brethren. He says, I beseech you, the, the loving plead there. I plead with you, be as I am, for I am as ye are. What's he talking about there? Well, Paul was a Jew. He was a Jew from Jerusalem is where he came from to take the gospel there to Galatia from Antioch, but originated there and while born in, in Tarshish. He, he was actually brought up in Jerusalem under the feet of Gamaliel, a famous rabbi there, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a Jew through and through. He practiced the law line for line. That's who he was. And yet when he came to Galatia, he didn't come to them as though he was a Jew. Jews wouldn't spend time with them. Jews wouldn't talk with them. Jews would compel Gentiles to be circumcised and to keep the law. And none of that happened. Here's what I believe in the context of, of this entire letter. Here's what I believe that Paul is saying. He's saying, be as I am. What is he? Free from the law. He's free from the law. And he says, for I am as ye are. You know what he's saying there? What I am, free from the law, is what you are, free from the law. If only you would recognize it. Here's what he's, it, it, maybe I could put it this way. He's saying, come back over. Don't stay over there with the Judaizers. Don't stay over there with those who are compelling you to become a Jew. Don't stay over there with those who are leading you away from the truth. Come back. Be as I am, for I am as ye are. Our hearts are knit together. We have the same gospel. I preached it to you. You received it. Now you're going off on a journey to, away from the truth. But I'm pleading with you to come back. Be as I am, for I am as ye are. Although they're relationship had been soured, Paul didn't take things personally. Look at the end of verse 12. He says, you have not injured me at all. You've not hurt me. You've not afflicted me. You've not caused me pain and suffering. I'm not taking this uh, on a personal level. And so while it had not affected him on a personal level, it had affected him on a pastoral level. He feels compelled to write this letter to address the problems that they're dealing with. But he just wants them to know, look, I know I'm coming at you from this pastoral perspective, uh, apostolic perspective to try to bring you back to the truth. But I want you to know this. It's not because I'm hurt. It's not because I'm envious. It's not because I'm jealous. It's not because I'm pained that you've turned away from me. Listen, when people veer from the truth, I think it's important to remember that it isn't you that they are turning away from. It's, I think it's important. There's a lot of times even for pastors that when people decide to leave the church and they, they go to a different church with a different doctrine, different style, and all those different things, that sometimes a pastor can take that quite personally, that it's my fault, and it can hurt, and it can injure, and it can even have the propensity to make a pastor or to make a church in general embittered towards somebody. But I think it's important that we take the perspective that Paul is taking here that, hey, this isn't personal. Yes, I'm passionate about the truth, and I want to plead with you to come back to the truth. But we can't get so personal that, that, we, uh, that we write them off. We've got to remember they're not turning away from us. They're turning away from the truth. And so as a loving brother, as a loving sister in Christ, it's important that we don't totally abandon somebody and write them off as a complete heretic and disown them. Unfortunately, that's what happens a lot, particularly in our Baptist churches, that when somebody goes a little bit off track, when somebody changes just a little bit, when somebody begins to question maybe what, what they believe about the preservation of scriptures, when somebody begins to question uh, something about music, when somebody begins to 
to even question and try to search out uh, Calvinistic theology, when they begin to search things out, a lot of times we're far too quick to just say heretic, disown them, kick them out of the circle, kick them out of the fellowship. But that's not the approach that the Apostle Paul takes here. See, what those people need is they need a friend that's still here on this side of the truth that's going to come to them and plead with them passionately, be as we are, for we are as you are. You need to come back to the truth. But if we just write them off, disown them, and abandon them, who's going to bring them back to the truth? But what happens is if we respond brashly to people and if we respond hatefully to people, that can only drive them further and further and further into that group and away from the truth. I think Paul grasps that. And he says, before, before I go too far, before I just, I just deliver so many punches, let me put my arm around him a little bit and say, I plead with you to, to come back. You've not hurt me. This isn't personal. And so you can tell his deeply emotional and passionate plea for them to return to the truth from which they had so soon departed. When Paul first went to Galatia, he preached at a time he was dealing with a severe physical condition. I want you to look at verse 13. He says, Ye know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. So the very first time that he went there to Galatia, he had some kind of infirmity, some kind of physical affliction going on. There's a lot of speculation as to what that was. Some say that it was something like malaria. Some say that it was an, an eye condition. We know that he dealt with uh, trouble with his eyes, that other people would write his letters for them. When he wrote it personally, it was in big letters. And so there was some kind of problem with his, uh, with his eye or some thorn in the flesh, as he refers to it sometimes, that he was dealing with. But in spite of Paul's ailment, they responded to him in love and respect. It says in verse 14, And my temptation which was in my flesh, ye despised not, nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. See, he's taking them back to when he first went. And he had this problem. And I've, I tend to lean more toward maybe it was a severe eye, eye issue that he was dealing with because that's alluded to later and you have the thorn in the flesh that he was dealing with. Uh, not sure, but here's what I imagine in this context. This thing was unsightly, perhaps repulsive. Something that as he come, you know, I, I don't know if it was a big swollen eye or an oozing eye, something that may have looked leprous even because what he's communicating here in verse 14 is that it would have been very easy for the Galatians to see his physical condition, to see his physical ailment, and to say, I'm going to stay away from that guy. <laughs> That's not very sightly. Maybe he should be covering his lip and crying unclean like a leper. You know, I don't know exactly what it was, but you just get that sense here that it, it could have been bad. It's something that was so bad it could have easily turned them away. But instead of turning them away, he said, you didn't belittle me. You didn't despise me. You didn't reject me because of this condition that I was dealing with. No, he says, you accepted me as though I was an angel from God. That was how you treated me, that I was sent directly from God. And then he says, even as though I was Christ Jesus himself. He says, you put me up on the same pedestal as Jesus. Paul would be the first to admit he didn't belong there. He's just communicating that's where they put him. They respected him so highly and they loved him so dearly and were so concerned and so careful about him. But something happened that changed their relationship. In verse 15, he says this, where is then the blessedness ye spake of? What's he talking about? The way that they viewed him as an angel from God the way they viewed him as directly the Lord Jesus Christ, the way they revered, the way that they spake. The, here's, here's what blessedness means, the favored status. He says, where has that gone? It's not like he's saying that's where I belong. He's just saying this is what it was. This is how you used to look at me. I mean, he goes on here in verse 15. He says this, I, for I bear you record that if it had been possible 
ye would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. That's another thing that gives an indication that it was his eye. That he says that you, you, you loved me, you respected me, you cared for me so much that if it were possible, you would have taken out your own eye and given it to me. You would have done that. But where has that gone? That's what he's asking now. See, before they were willing, when they were willing to pluck out their eyes, it demonstrates how much they loved and respected him. And, and I would just say it this way, that when you're young in the faith, especially, you have a deep respect for those who brought you to Christ, for those that bring you up in the truth, whether it's your parents, whether it's a youth pastor or a pastor or maybe a neighbor that invited you to church when you were a little kid. They just said, hey, my family's going to church. You want to come with me? And you went with them and you received the gospel and it changed your life forever. You have a deep respect for them. Just today, I was at work and we had an outside sales rep uh, come in by the name of Jesse and and I was talking with him, and of course, it's been a year and a half since I, I've seen him, since the last time I worked at Sherwin-Williams. And, and he comes in, and he sees me at the counter, and he says, where have you been? And so we struck up this conversation. I told him, well, I, I went off into doing some traveling for a new ministry. We started a church here in Boulder, and he asked me, what's, what's the church called? I said, Boulder Valley Baptist Church. And he said, Boulder Valley Baptist Church. He said, i got to tell you something. When I was 10 years old, my mom was a drug addict, left me and my sister on the streets. We were homeless. She was a year younger than me, 10 and 9 years old. He said, we had a family down the street, and uh, they had just started a church. This is about 30 years ago now. They had just started a church, and they, they, were, they were having this church in their duplex there. <laughs> That's where they were meeting. And he said, he said this family, they... they they took us in. They brought us into their home. We lived with them for a year and a half. He said it was Cornerstone Baptist Church of Greater Denver, where Roger Alley is the pastor. Gordon Alley is the youth pastor. And so he came up in the home for a year and a half with Gordon Alley. And he was brought into their home. They shared the gospel with him. Both he and his sister trusted Christ as their Savior. And then this young man, he said... He said when he, you know, he's 10, 11 years old, and, and he said they were so in love with God. And I'll say this, we went to their church a couple years ago when we were on deputation, and I've been acquainted with uh, Pastor Gordon Alley for several years and, and met Brother Roger and his wife, and I will tell you this, that family loves God. They love Jesus. They are wonderful people, as evidenced by the way they took in these two homeless kids. And they, they he said... <laughs> He said, they taught me the Bible. I mean, they opened the Bible every morning and every night. And they prayed with us and they fed us and they clothed us and they took us to downtown 16th Street Mall in Denver and we street preached. And he said, I was out there, 10 year old kid, just trusted Christ and I was so excited and I was out there preaching. There's none righteous, no, not one. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And man, he's given me this testimony and he is just gushing about this family. Why? Because he was a homeless kid. His mom was a drug addict, abandoned them. And this happened several times. And this family took him in and told him the truth. And he received the truth. And now 30 years later, he told me he was just talking to Gordon a couple weeks ago still has a connection with that family, still has a love, an oozing love and respect for this family. Hey, that's what happens when somebody tells you the truth, when somebody shares the gospel with you. I'll tell you, I have great respect for my parents that brought me up in a Christian home and taught me the Bible and prayed for me and loved on me and cared for me. I'm thankful that I had Bible college professors that spent their time studying and they invested in my life and they met with me over lunches and they talked about church planting and they talked about theology and they talked about the gospel and they let me serve alongside them at the church there with the youth pastor. I mean, there were people that just poured their lives into me and invested in me and many of those people are my dearest friends to this very day. Though I may not talk to them every day, every time I go back to Heartland Baptist Bible College in Oklahoma City, it's like we never left. It's like we pick up just like that. Why? I love them. I respect them. 
because of what they've done in my life. But what I've noticed is that some of the people that I went to college with have gone out into the ministry and they've gotten around some other pastors and they've gotten involved with some different groups and some different uh, movements and they've read some different books and some things have changed in their lives. And what can happen is they can go on social media and they can post in an, in an anonymous fashion, never naming anyone by name, never naming any school by name or any church by name, never naming their home church or their home pastor by name, but talking in such a way that you realize this, that those friends who invested in them and loved on them and gave them the truth, those friends of truth have now become their enemies. And they don't have that same respect. They don't have that same love something's changed and that's what happened with Paul and the Galatians here their dear friend who brought them to Christ taught them the truth loved on them and poured his time and his energy into them he was no longer respected the way he was before no longer revered well what changed how had their relationship been altered and why was it now different well what Paul's going to do is he's going to show how their relationship had taken a turn for the worse. He says in verse 16, Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? That listen, because I see where you're at and I see where you're gone and I'm coming after you and I'm trying to give you the truth and I'm trying to bring you back to the truth. Are you now seeing me as an enemy? I haven't changed. I haven't gone anywhere. I'm the same guy who gave you the same message those years ago. But something's changed here. When he came to Galatia, he preached in their cities that Jesus came to free them from the bondage of paganism and Judaism through his sacrificial death on the cross. And they came to believe the gospel and the truth that Paul had preached to them. And it did, in fact, liberate them from whichever sector they were coming out of, whatever bondage they were under. And they loved him. They valued him. They revered him. But now, somehow, their friend of truth has become their enemy. Why is that? Look at verse 17. They zealously affect you. You know what that word means, translated zealously affect? It means to hotly pursue. It means to court, like a courtship. I mean, you think of the way that a young man would hotly pursue that young lady. He's going after her. He's trying to charm her. He's taking her out on dates. He's buying her fancy jewelry. He's giving her nice flowers. He's being very gentlemanly and, and, and all, very charming and all those things. I mean, he is in hot pursuit. Why? He's trying to win that girl over to him. That's what the word zealously affect means. He says, they, these Judaizers, they've come into your church and they've courted you. They've been charming. They've used smooth words. They've slightly twisted the scripture to fit their system. They're trying to bring you over to them. They've been in hot pursuit of you. They zealously affect you. But he says, but not well, not in a good way. They're not trying to court you over to a good position. They're not trying to court you over to the truth. He says, in fact, they would exclude you. Well, what does that mean? Well, it could mean that because the way they're courting them away from the truth into this other system, that it's excluding them from the church, it's shutting them out from the church. It could mean that. But I believe because of the context and the way that Paul is talking, that he's saying this, they're estranging you from me. They're trying to get this exclusion, this alienation. The word means to separate. They're trying to get in between us. They're alienating me. They're talking about me as though I am your enemy. He goes on to say this. Why, why would they do that? That ye might affect them. You know what he's saying there? They're scratching your backs, so you'll go scratch their backs. You know, they're, they're courting you. They're, they're trying to alienate you from me so that you'll attach yourself to them. So you'll affect them. So you'll have affections for them. See, here's what he's saying. They're not trying to win you over to the truth. 
They're trying to win you over to themselves. Warren Wearsby said that one of the marks of a false teacher is that they're more concerned with winning people to them than they are with winning people to Christ. And there are many, many groups within Christianity that would be represented by that very statement. Rather than trying to reach their community with the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're trying to take people out of churches like this over to their position. That's what's happening. And that's what happened here in Galatia. He says that they zealously affect you so that you would affect them. They were self-centered. The way that they did this was by propagating lies that feed the flesh. They taught that there is a way that they could make themselves more righteous, more acceptable with God and more of a child of God through their own religious performance. And here's what it did. It allowed the Galatians in a way to be their own saviors, which is what men want to be, to save themselves, to make life better for themselves, to not need to depend on God. But lest they think that Paul was just jealous and envious because they had learned some things without his involvement, because they learned something uh, from somebody else, lest they think he's jealous or hurt because of that. Look what he says in verse 18. But it's good to be zealously affected always in a good thing. He says, hey, well, let me finish the verse here. He says, and not only when I'm present with you, you know what he's saying? It doesn't matter to me who you learn truth from so long as you're learning truth. I'm fine if you're courted by somebody like Barnabas. I'm fine if you're courted by somebody like James, John, and Peter. I'm fine if you're courted by somebody like Apollos. I have no problem with that. He says, I plant the seed, Apollos watered, and God gives the increase. That's what he said in 1 Corinthians when this spat, kind of spat thing was going on. And so what he's saying here is it's, it's not about the fact that you learned something from other than me. It's about the fact you learned something that wasn't true. It wasn't true. Paul's concern was not that he was losing followers. It goes far deeper than that. And what he's going to do here in these last couple of verses, he expresses a desire to do whatever was necessary to see that Christ was formed in them. He says in verse 19, my little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. What's he saying by that? Well, when he first went to Galatia, and he preached the gospel to them, it was a little bit on the painful side. <laughs> it was like a struggle. I mean, you think about when a, when a woman has a, has a baby, that is a painful thing. It's a struggle. It can be hours of labor and difficulty and, and pain and suffering. And then when that child is brought forth and handed to that mother, it's all worth it. It's all a blessing. It's all beautiful. And what he's doing is he's comparing that to his ministry there. That when I came there, I did suffer. It was painful. It was heartache. I was dealing with this problem with my eye. And next thing you know, at Lystra, they're throwing rocks at me and they're trying to get rid of me and they're trying to kill me. There was with much pain, much labor, much travail, many hours studying, many hours discipling, many hours preaching the word of God. It was a lot of labor. It was a lot of work. But in the end, it was well worth it. Why? Because there were new births all over that region as people believe the gospel. And so he says, my little children of whom I travail in birth again. You know what he's saying there? I'll do it all over again. In fact, I am right now. You get the picture here that maybe he's pouring some tears as he's writing this. And he's thinking about the pain. He's thinking about the grief. He's thinking about the sorrow and the, and the fight here that he's engaged in the spiritual battle for truth and for souls in their hearts and in their churches. And, and it's like he's He's dealing with this and he's saying, you know, I know this is pain again. I know this is hard. But if this is what it takes for Christ to take shape in your heart again, for that cross-shaped heart to be formed in you again, not a law tablet-shaped heart, but a cross-shaped heart, if this is what it takes to be formed in you again, then it is well worth it. And he says this in verse 20, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, to not be so harsh, if that's what it takes, 
I'm breaking it up here and I want to be with you. He says, for I stand in doubt of you. That word stand in doubt, it, it means to be at a loss. I don't really know what to do here. I don't know which way this is going to go. And so whether I've got to give you the doctrine, if I've got to appeal emotionally to our past, if I've got to come to you and be present with you and change my voice, whatever it takes, here is my concern that Christ takes shape in your heart. I'm not concerned about losing followers. I'm not concerned about, about what they're doing or who they are or any of those things. No, I'm concerned about Christ in this situation. How is it that these church members, I mean, you can feel his love. You can feel his zeal and his passion, his desire for them here. How is it that they could turn so quickly from such a friend of truth to people who were enemies of truth? Why did that happen? Well, a friend of truth became the Galatians' enemy because the enemies of truth had become their friends. Things had flipped. What happened is that when these Judaizers came in with their distortion of truth and they began to court them over to their side and their position, the Galatians allowed them to become as, if not more, influential to their thinking and their beliefs than Paul was and than the true gospel was. The more they leaned in to the Judaizers, the more they sat down with them, the more they listened to them and gave ear, the more time they spent with them, the more they allowed them to teach and preach in their churches. Here's what I'm trying to say. The closer they got to the enemies, the further they got from their friend. That's what happened in there. And so the truth for us tonight is this. When you allow the enemies of truth to become your friends, your friends of truth will become your enemies. Who you spend your time with, who you listen to, what you watch significantly influences what you think and what you believe. And the strongest influences in our world today are often the enemies of truth. Think about it. Politicians, musicians, Hollywood, athletes, celebrities. I realized amongst every one of those groups, there are Bible-believing and practicing Christians. I realized that. But the vast majority of them deny God reject the Bible, despise Christianity, and follow everything that goes against God's way of life. They're the enemies of truth. And yet it is the enemies of truth who have the largest platforms. They have the most opportunity, the loudest microphones. They have the, they, they have the longest segments they are the voices that are constantly being put in front of you. From the radio to movies and TV shows to news channels to social media and everywhere else you get your information. Those are the people that you hear from, the enemies of truth. And yet these enemies of truth have become some of the strongest influences in Christian homes because of how much time Christians give to the TV, because of how much time they give to the radio, because of how much time they give to scrolling down the social media pages in their phones, to reading news articles, to having the news channel on. They have the strongest influence in our Christian homes. And so now many Christians side with the pop culture on issues like marriage, morality, abortion, identity. And what happens is they end up launching full-scale attacks on fellow Christians and label them as hate groups. They refuse to go to the churches that they once attended because they're full of hypocrites, so they say. 
They don't accept 21st century cultural beliefs. They won't pick up a Bible because they think it's outdated. And what has happened is this, because the enemies of truth have become their closest friends and their strongest influences, all their friends of truth are now their enemies. Some of my Bible college friends will have nothing to do with their home churches, their childhood pastor, their college, those who invested time in them, those who labor to teach them the truth. And the reason why is because they spent too much time listening to the philosophies and the teachings of people who with smooth words and twisted scriptures and heavy recruitment tactics have have led them away into ways of thinking and even doctrine that opposes the truth of Scripture. Understand this, when I talk about the enemies of truth, when we move over into this Christian realm, understand that I'm not necessarily saying that they're heretics. I'm not necessarily saying that they're lost and that they're going to hell. Those aren't the things that I'm saying. What I'm saying is this, if the truth says this, and they say this, they stand over against the truth, in opposition to the truth, in contradiction to the truth. And so I'm not, I'm not criticizing from the standpoint that I'm throwing hate at anybody. I'm not saying they're evil. I'm not saying they're demonic. I'm not saying any of those things. I don't think Paul would say that about the Judaizers. In fact, he doesn't say that about the Judaizers, but he does consider them <coughs> to be enemies of the truth because they stand in opposition to the truth. And so that's what I'm, what I'm talking about tonight. Not every person and not every church who names the name of Christ is necessary a friend of the truth. Unbeknownst to you, they might even be an enemy of the truth. That what they think, what they believe, and what they teach might stand over against what is true. They might teach that you don't need faith in Christ because in the end, God's love is going to win out and everybody's going to get saved. There's not going to be a hell. Everybody's going to go to heaven. There are some that teach that. Listen, the truth doesn't teach that and they stand over against the truth. They may teach that baptism saves you. They may teach that taking the bread and taking the cup is a necessary demand to be saved. They may say that. They may teach that you need the law to be accepted with God or that you can only come to God through an earthly human priest if you want forgiveness. But that the, 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 the scripture, the truth of scripture teaches that Jesus is our high priest. And the Bible says that no man cometh unto the father, but by me, it doesn't say, but by me and Peter or by me and James or by me and this saint or that saint or Mary or the other. No, it's that you only come to God through me and through me alone. That's why that temple veil was torn in two, so that they knew you don't have to go through a priest again. You don't have to offer another sacrifice of atonement. No, Jesus is that priest. The truth is here. And if they stand in opposition to the truth, they are an enemy of the truth. They may teach that God chose sovereignly to save some, but chooses to condemn others, not because of their response to the gospel, but simply because God wants to. That's an enemy of the truth. They may attack the inspiration and the preservation of the scriptures. They may attack the relevance and the importance of the church. And so even within the realm of Christianity, there are enemies of the truth. And so I want to pose this question to you tonight. Are your strongest influences, are your closest friends, are the things that have your ear the most, are they friends of the truth or are they enemies of the truth? Are the musicians and the songs that you listen to friends of the truth? What about the shows and the content you watch on TV? Are they influencing you to the truth? Or are they influencing you away from the truth? What about the theological discussions that you watch on YouTube? 
Are they lining up with the truth of Scripture? Are they full of man's opinions and what this book said and what this author said and what this guy said that really helps me? Or is it this is what God says? This is what the Bible plainly says. You may have some friends or you may have a relationship in your life, somebody that has significant draw, somebody that has significant pull, and, 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 and they aren't influencing you to the truth. They're influencing you away from the truth. You may spend a lot of time reading, whether they're news articles, fiction, or theological studies. Whether you realize it or not, the content, the theology, the philosophy of those books, those articles are heavily influencing your life. And if those readings are not the friends of the truth, then it may not be long before the friends of the truth become your enemies. And so the message tonight is this. Don't become friends with the enemies of truth or else you'll become enemies with the friends of truth. You have a friend in Jesus, a friend who loves you dearly, a friend who came and died for you. Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. You know what that means? There's not a single human being on the face of this earth from your mom or your dad to your pastor who loves you more than Jesus. Because he died to pay the price for your sin. Don't let an enemy of truth do or say anything that would take you away from him. Paul told the Galatians, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him who hath called you into his grace. See, these Judaizers were not really taking them away from Paul. They were taking them away from Christ. And it's possible for you to have influences in your life today that threaten to take you from Christ. Don't let anything take you away from the one who gave his life for your salvation. You have some strong influences of truth in your life. Godly music can influence you. A church family, a pastor, a Bible these are all things that will influence you to the truth. You have certain things and certain people in your life who love you and can immensely help influence you toward the truth. And so I plead with you, as Paul pleaded with the Galatians, let them be your closest friends. Let them be your strongest influences so that rather than abandoning the truth, you stay right where God wants you to be. Father, we come to you tonight.